Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunana Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 93 of the podcast, the topic is Orchestrating the Freelancer Economy. Our guest is Matt Coatney, CTO at HBR Consulting. In this conversation, we talk about the book that Matt Coatney co-authored called The Human Cloud, how today's change makers use artificial intelligence and the freelance economy to transform work. From routinized, repetitive assembly line work towards project-oriented work in all sectors, enablers include AI, globalization, cloud platforms, and shadow IT. Limitations include structure, regulations, organizational blockers. We talk about the future outlook, where orchestration is the key human skill Industry and task-specific cloud collaboration platforms matter as well. Matt, how are you today? I'm doing well. Good afternoon. Good to see you again. Likewise. Well, look, I'm looking forward to having a discussion about the freelancer economy. You, um, you've written a book about it. You've been in business for a good number of years. I've been uh, looking into your career path here. You seem to have been inside of uh, kind of business publishing houses and uh, uh, doing life science, IT, uh, lots of uh, consulting towards, uh, you know, last few years, deeply embedded in technology, but from a multiple set of angles. That's, it's, that's a polite way of saying it. My, my career has been a bit of a, a wayward journey, but uh, always with a thread around how technology can help people. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time in, in that capacity in different industries, uh, to your point, really looking at how AI in particular, but all, all kinds of technology can help. Right, right, right. So we'll, we'll get to that, but I guess this is part of what the, your, your book, Human Cloud, uh, is about. Technology needs to fit into all these business contexts. You can't just know a lot about technology. Right? That's, that's, that's partly that's, what this is about. That's right. Yeah, I spent my uh, my first couple of years uh, in industry building software and and loved the loved the creative uh, action of doing that. But it was rather disheartening because we spent all of this time building really sophisticated tools and and just really excited about it, and then watching it fall flat in the marketplace. So it really started. That was what pivoted me more toward this: how technology fits in from a, a user's perspective and from a business perspective. Uh, that's that's what really excites me, right? How do we make it work for people? Yes, that is the point, isn't it? You know, in terms of this freelancer track that we'll get to in a second, that's that's a whole other story, right? Because now not only do you have to make it work, but you have to make it work from from a different context where you're, at least from the freelancer's perspective, but certainly from the company's perspective, not seeing all the all the moving parts. But look, I, I wanted to to take this a little earlier uh, back into sort of your career. If you're mining, you know, if you're mining for why you took this meandering path, you studied and very early on got exposed to sort of life science, and you were in kind of the bio world. What was it that pulled you over more into uh, the enterprise, general enterprise IT world, and um, yeah, I guess yeah, that's my no. question. Good, good question. Uh, 
part of it was just happenstance. Uh, to say it was a well-defined path is a bit being a bit generous to my my younger self. Uh, a lot of it was uh, following opportunity and. What I enjoy most is working on really complicated systems and and really like digging into some really intellectual meaty stuff. And you know, 25 years ago when I entered industry, you had to really go up market to find that. You had to go into these research organizations that were investing millions and millions of dollars on cutting edge technology. Uh, but as I've grown and as we've matured as a, as a technolo- technological world, uh, I found that I was able to meet that same kind of intellectual stimulation, curiosity down market, right? To your point, working within enterprises, more traditional businesses, um, because they've begun to have access to these kind of, of um, tools and, and capabilities in a way that only the richest of organizations had 25 years ago. Um, and that's been really, it's been neat to be able to take techniques that we leveraged in a really, you know, really clever way and take that sort of down market into a traditional enterprise. Another little tidbit that I wanted to cover is, so you went to Ohio State and a lot of your career has been in Ohio. Give me, give, give me a sense of how you think about IT in Ohio. <laughs> sure, sure, absolutely. Well, I'm, I've it been seems fortunate. like a dumb question, but maybe. No, maybe it's, a good, it's a good question. Well, it, it, speaks to, it speaks to that prior point. So, uh, you know, Ohio is is one of those states. It's actually quite populous and has a lot going on. But if you're if you're on the East Coast or West Coast, it sort of all blurs together as one big Midwestern blur. Uh, but uh, you know, I've been fortunate that I've been exposed to and worked with organizations across the country as well as as across the world. Um, being able to call Ohio home has been great. Uh, it, there is a lot that actually happens here. Uh, that I think is unbeknownst to the larger audience, but there's quite a bit of innovation. Uh, some of the Fortune 500 companies, you know, your Procter and Gambles and, and Kroger's of the world, are based here. Uh, thriving uh, university system, um, but it's it's more nuanced, right? We don't necessarily create a lot of noise or or do a lot of marketing around it, but there's quite a bit of innovation going on here if you know where to look. Yeah, I guess that's partly why I was asking because you know I, I do know that a lot of uh, Fortune 500s you, you know are congregating around. Uh, well, I guess you've been in sort of between Dayton, Cincinnati, the different different parts. Um, but I was also interested in if there is a heartland take on IT. Really um, a heartland? Hmm. You know, I think that. I go back to you know Mark Zuckerberg was was uh, famous. Well, because before. there is a Silicon Valley take, surely, and there I is guess a Silicon Boston, Valley. We would take, claim yeah. there is a take. There is a take. Yeah. yeah, I think I think for Ohio, it's it's how do you how do you build things for the long term? How do you, how do you make it last? And there's a lot of focus in sort of Silicon Valley about that rapid growth and that exponential trajectory and, and things of that nature. Um, but a lot of that can be flash pan and sort of be gone in an instant where we're thinking about how do you build systems, capabilities, uh, businesses that scale well, thoughtfully and, and have longevity. Um, so I, I think that's been important, you know, that's been the heartland take I have seen having worked with some of the organizations out on the East and West coast. Hmm. Well, you know, maybe this was an unfair question, but I wanted to to do it just because, you know, we're talking about the f- orchestrating the freelancer and freelance economy here. And, and, you know, whether you're a freelancer or not, when you do work from 
Ohio, and you know, obviously, even if the company actually is uh, headquartered there, you certainly have clients that are elsewhere. I mean, that's just a, a fact of life. Absolutely. So I was wondering, you know, in terms of what we're going to get into now, which is this greater facilitation for freelance, which technology arguably has has brought us. If there was a particular preparation for that, you know, given that Ohio. Uh, that you know, if you do run global operations from Ohio, you kind of had to think about this not just last year with a pandemic, but this would have had to be part of the planning already. That's ex- it's exactly right, and and it it cuts both ways. So I think for for organizations that are uh, in we'll call them high rent districts, right? Your Silicon Valley, New York, uh, Tokyo, other other places, you have to be thinking about even before last year, how can you access talent that is sitting in lower cost regions in a seamless way that goes beyond traditional outsourcing? And so how can you pull in experts that live in Ohio or in Illinois or wherever they live? Um, How can you pull them into your fabric and work with them in an effective way? Uh, And our organizations and, and sort of structures and policies haven't always made that easy. Um, And then conversely, right? If you're in if you're in Ohio, you're in the Midwest. How are you tapping into uh, talent that you know? It, for instance, AI is a good example. Uh, I've been helping a startup try to source a, uh, a IT director that knows about artificial intelligence and knows about AWS and cloud. That's a very short list in Ohio. But if you broaden that and look at the rest of the country, the rest of the world, uh, the list gets longer. So, so it, it cuts both ways, and I, I think that. You know, as I've thought about it, um, COVID has helped accelerate what was a trend to begin with, which is breaking down these barriers, at least geographically, uh, to start thinking about how we source a team for what we need and not for where they are. Hmm. Not not profound, right? But certainly, uh, we've seen, we've always thought that that I heard I heard a good quote. It's it's twenty twenty is what we expected to happen just ten years earlier. Hmm. Well, tell tell us uh, about this journey because you know you wrote a book on the human cloud on how basically change makers and I'd love to hear wh- who you consider change makers. Sure. Um, you know, are using AI and and the freelance economy to transform work and, and and I guess the workplace. How how do you explain this history and when did it start and and you know just give us a short sure. sort of historical timeline here. Sure, absolutely. And uh, first off, the book for me was was my own freelance experience. Uh, so a quick genesis of of how the book came to be was uh, I had done I, I've been dabbling in freelancing really as a way to scratch my creative itches. So it, it's more about you know I, I'm a, a corporate executive now. I, I certainly don't want for things um, in the traditional sense, but what I do look for is is ability to do things like creative writing, um, talking as a thought leader, as an expert in in these various topics. And so I actually did a freelance project with uh, someone where I helped them write a uh, it was a report on the state of AI, and uh, that happened to be my eventual co-author. So we we met. I supported him, worked on, did some ghostwriting for him. That sort of blossomed into a friendship. And then uh, he said, uh, "Well, why don't we uh, why don't we write a book? Because I've I've got one. It's pretty much already done." Were his were his famous last words? It was it was nowhere near done. But uh, we we uh, got together. Uh, started pitching to public publishers and ultimately landed with HarperCollins, uh, which we've been thrilled about. Um, 
but from a, you know, it was, it was my experience sort of tasting what freelance is like. I've learned a lot over the last couple of years from him. He is more of a freelance expert, has been really been foundational in building the systems around how freelancers work in an enterprise. Uh, you know, for me, I think the, the, when I, when I think about this, right. And you think about a change maker, um, really what that means is, a, is just someone that is focused on delivering value. That's their metric. Um, that's what they do to make their mark in the world, to be successful, to, to drive a business. And yeah, that has not, that hasn't changed, right? I <laughs> think about you know, my success in my corporate career has largely been because that's been my, my focus. That's been my area of expertise is growing value within organizations and businesses and demonstrating that. And that begets the next role and the next role. Uh, mm. That's the same that, you know, freelancers aren't new and solo practitioners, whatever you would like to call them, uh, people that sort of hung out their shingle over the past several decades, the same concept. But what is different, and this is, this is really our central conceit, right, is that what is different now is that the tools that you have at your disposal whether you're a corporation or a freelancer, to be effective and to generate that 10x value that you're looking for, there's so much more you can work with now than there was 20, 30 years ago. Um, and that's I think that's yeah. that's interesting, right? Because I was yeah. looking into this actually in I guess in many ways, but in my PhD a long time ago. And you know, if you if you go more than 10 years back, if you go 20 years back, there was also this moment, you know, around the first internet craze where everybody said, this is coming now, right? And there were books about the freelance economy, all of that stuff. And yes, there was freelancing, but that kind of freelancing was the odd job and it was like right. writing. What you're talking about, and, you know, please explain, but you're talking about deeper and higher level and higher hierarchical type of knowledge, um, which are making bigger and bigger impacts in, in corporations. You're not saying, well, you were, you were using an example before hiring an executive, right? which is something you would not really think of even back in 99 when I was writing about these things. No one was truly saying, they were saying actually, but they didn't really believe it. They didn't, they didn't what I found it. out. They didn't really believe that you could sit on an island you could maybe somewhat run the company, but you certainly couldn't get a job as a C-level executive, right? You know, right. fresh off the boat from some other company. You can, you can't convince people that I'm going to sit on this island and and do this job, right? So what right. has yeah. changed? What has changed? Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, I think when we used to think about freelancing, and I used to think about freelancing back in the early 2000s, it was ah, I'm going to get someone to build a website, going to get someone to design a logo for me. Uh, you know, these types of activities. And now we're seeing accountants, lawyers, executives, very, very high echelon type of work uh, being brought in as freelancers and, and supporting a career as a freelancer. Uh, you know, one of the things we talk about that, that I think fundamentally changed, take technology and all the other stuff off the plate, uh, we, we talk about something called portable merit, meaning it used to be that your credentials were your resume. It was a title of a company. It was your longevity there and your role and not much else. Maybe your network, maybe people that knew you and could vouch for you. Uh, now with the, this notion of sort of social media, uh, a professional brand portfolios, more and more people 
are having basically that stamp of here's what I've done be very visible in the world and very obvious. You've got peer reviews coming in, people comp, you know, complimenting your work, writing recommendations on a LinkedIn or Upwork. So all of this, all of this is giving a the ability to walk into a new role with a, a list of accomplishments that's that's real and tangible and people can, it's that building that trust, right? It's that that trust relationship that you're walking in with that was so hard to do when it was geographically isolated and, and sort of individual uh, networks. So, but, so that could be many things. It's content, but it's could, it could also be software. I mean, on GitHub, you're, you could theoretically Absolutely. have, you know, your, your code base Absolutely. basically, which, uh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and designers, we yeah. see designers having live portfolios that are very interactive. That was hard to do when, you know, it took a long time or you had to be a web developer to stand something like that up. So it's that, mm. that barrier to entry, that lessening of friction for that type is just one example, right? And then there's obviously technology platforms and, you know, corporate mores and things like that, that involved as well. So let's deepen this focus more on the enablers because there surely are still some limitations, which we'll, we'll cover a little bit as well. And I know you care about both, but in terms of these enablers, so the technological part, uh, I guess in a loose sense, we have covered already. So, but w- what is that? What is that? Is it the cloud more generally? The fact that there are these computing platforms where you can host your work, your content. I guess the the resume platforms, you know, most famously LinkedIn, I guess, but also many, many other more niche places where designers congregate and right. and uh, do more than just hang on social media. They actually share their professional lives and lasting things uh, that they have created uh, which of these things you know was available even just 10 years ago that matters today i guess if you go to kind of resume platforms there were several of them uh, right. even even just 10 15 years ago but their importance has has taken on a new meaning now what what are some of the other types of software you would put into kind of this necessary category to to really have what we have today Sure, sure. Economy. Yeah, the the branding aspect is a key one, right? That's our our you know our virtual resume to get in the door. But but what I have found that's really helped is the variety and sophistication of tools that help with collaboration. And I don't mean to use such a trite sort of over overly generic term, uh, but what I mean specifically is you know 10, 15 years ago if you wanted to work with someone that was outside of your organization, it was basically email, maybe Dropbox, you know, a few other techniques like that, but nothing that was really, I call it sophisticated. And and today we have all the tools that we're using day in and day out being a virtual world now, uh, Zoom and Google Docs and, and Drive and, and Teams and Slack and you, you name it, right? And that, it, it means something, having been in multiple organizations where we either had those tools or not, the, the level of flexibility of work, particularly as we start pivoting more toward project-based and episodic work, as opposed to just coming in and doing the same role day in and day out, the more we do that kind of work, the real need for teams to come together and share uh, is critical. And, and again, 15 years ago, that was really, it was actually really hard to do. Just t- tactically, it was difficult to get basic work done. Yeah, so that, yeah. and uh, there's two things here, though, because you talk about it as the freelance economy. But, of course, the larger discussion which COVID has brought is everyone, in a sense, is a freelancer to their own yes. company now. 
you know, in the sense that, you know, the tools you're using as a regular employee trying to work virtually are fairly similar to what a freelancer, you know, slightly less so perhaps there were some systems that a freelancer will not have access to today. But largely those are the those are the gating challenges and the sort of the cybersecurity challenges of, of, of companies these days. They're not foundational challenges because you can give access rights and things. And uh, I, I want you to just talk a little bit about that because yeah. um, as an enabler, it's easy to sort of just imagine that this is endless and it's like there, there are no limitations. Talk to me, I guess, a little bit about, so you were doing some research on who these freelancers are, I, I'm imagining, and, and kind of globalization's role in this. You know, are, Is it really the, the fact that beyond kind of the logos and the design work, are we increasingly in America in corporations taking in workforce uh, from, you know, freelance workforce from around the world to do core core business? We we are, and I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, some from the book, some some not. Uh, but you you touch on a, a piece there that's that's really critical. Uh, and, and Matt and I riff on this quite a bit. We don't view freelance and corporate as two separate, to your point, two separate and distinct entities. Um, they they are more and more becoming commingled, and the techniques that you can use in one flavor of organization work whether you're a freelancer and, and company of one all the way up to a company of you know 50,000. The techniques and, and things that help you become a change maker, that help you orchestrate and add value, that's across the board. Uh, it's just how you apply it maybe is subtly different. Um, but, but to your point, uh, what we've seen with freelancers and, and corporations uh, is the, the level of the individual and the type of work, the longevity of the arrangement, these are increasing. Uh, we have seen, we had a good example where there was a uh, industrial company back in the Midwest, so this would have been in Wisconsin, I believe, that was looking for an app developer to build some virtual reality capabilities into their app. This is a traditional like 100-year-old uh, vehicle manufacturer. Uh, they could not find talent, not just in the Midwest. They actually couldn't find the right skill set they were looking for in the U.S. at all. Uh, so they ended up working with a developer in, in Japan. Uh, and, you know, more close to home, I was uh, prior to my current role, I worked as at a uh, data analytics startup. And one of our core developers was also based in Japan, uh, made for interesting company meetings. But but it it was happening in reality. And, you know, we see particularly in smaller organizations where where hiring, say, a full-time accountant doesn't always make sense uh, leveraging a freelance platform like a Pero to bring in a high-level professional. Uh, lawyers are, you know, there's still many large law firms and there are some, there's value in that and what they bring, but there are some lawyers that are choosing a different lifestyle and becoming freelancers as well. That's another model that has been working well in certain types of law. So we, we are, we're seeing a good number of examples where, where it's becoming more of the fabric of how a corporation operates as opposed to a one-off. So that brings me on the technology side, though, to the fact that, uh, you know, it all depends, I guess, how technology evolves as well. There's now kind of the low-code, no-code movement where, you know, things are becoming more hot-pluggable and, you know, arguably you can use advanced technology with uh, less of the foundational engineering skills that, than you used to and you can build advanced applications if you have the right tools 
But still, like you, you're, you know, you have artificial intelligence in in your book title, I guess. For these kinds of applications, um, at that level of applying technology, is it still realistic? I mean, c- can you really hire a CTO as a freelancer uh, over over time? Is that still a smart? You know, is that now a smart move? Um, and and you know, at the highest level of technology. Is that also becoming easier, or is there still uh, a barrier there? You know, if we're sort of moving a little bit more to to some limitations. Sure. Yeah. It it's a uh, it's nuanced. I wouldn't say there's a there's an easy or obvious answer there. Uh, I I often when I'm advising businesses, uh, talk to them about what are you solving for, and if you're solving for something that is episodic. Uh, you know, you don't need someone sitting in a seat 40, 50, 60 hours a week and, and something that you can bring in periodically. Is it a skill set that you wouldn't be able to afford because it's in a such hot demand like AI? Um, or is it something that's going to be sort of once and done? You're building something out and then you don't need to maintain it, right? Those are good examples of, of reasons you would bring someone in as a freelancer versus hiring. So you, you have to think through what's your outcome, what are you prioritizing? And... Uh, you know, I would say, for instance, right, a, C, a freelance CTO, uh, that's a virtual seat, virtual CIO, virtual CISO, these type of roles. Uh, they work for smaller organizations that can't afford yet, right? Startups often will do this. So, so there, it depends. It depends on the model. Uh, I do think particularly with artificial intelligence uh, and any of those like advanced, you know, mobile, cloud, et cetera, they're in such hot demand that, uh, unless it is your core competency uh, and you want to build that as an organic function, you're much better off bringing in third parties to help you with that. It, it may be more expensive in the short term, but it's going to be less expensive in the long run. I, well, I see your point there. I mean, it just yeah. depends what, what skills you have around you. So clearly that that makes for, you know, if you are in, a, in an area where those skills are either in high demand or they're virtually non-existent, you know, this actually yeah. brings you on par uh, a little bit with, with businesses that are located elsewhere. Yeah. But what and about she- some of the other limitations in terms yeah. of, I mean, my, the first thing that comes to mind, and, and I know we'll talk about structure in a moment, but, you know, it's just regular sort of teamwork. I mean, to the extent you're hiring a leader, you're also hiring someone that's going to shepherd a team, that's going to drive the social dimension, uh, perhaps, and the cohesion, the team cohesion forward. Mm-hmm. Where are we with that? Is, is Slack sufficient right now to create a company <laughs> culture around the tech team? No, no, it's it's not. I, I know there are, you know, there are organizations that, have gone completely virtual and have been for some time and can build a strong company culture, but it is, it is difficult. It is difficult. Uh, there, you have to be very cognizant of and spend a lot more effort thinking about and articulating culture in a virtual environment or a freelance sort of loose team environment than if everybody's under the same roof, right? We're, we're, we are uh, social animals and we, rely on a lot of cues that we miss in a digital environment and that makes it harder to build trust. Um, so again, there's, there's, there is definitely a, I think a psychological impediment there. Uh, there are also, I think just structural impediments to your point from an organization to build, uh, to build a culture or deliver on a product, 
there's a lot that goes into that. And, and some of the tactical work can be done very transactionally, you know, with the, you know, I'm going to give you this task over Slack, or I'm going to assign a task to you on a JIRA board or whatever, and you'll get, uh, you'll get that back. But if you're talking strategy, design, roadmaps, things of that nature, you still have to come together as a team. Uh, I, I do find there, there is a, there is a model that's somewhere between a full-time traditional employee and a transactional freelancer. And, and I've heard it referred to, I think Reed Hoffman mentioned it to it as a tour of duty. Um, so it's like, a, like in the military, you're, you're sort of enlisting for or joining for a few years. You have a set mission. You go, you execute on that. So you have longevity. You have that connectivity with the organization. You're driving that value. But then at the end of that stint, you say, okay, do we want to do another stint together? What, what else can I help you with? And if if not, then there's a amicable parting of ways. But it's not this institutional full time, and it's not this transactional freelancer. It's somewhere in between. It's interesting you point that out. I was um, I was going to bring in another, I guess, something in between an enabler yeah. and a limitation. But you know, if you have robotic process automation into this mix, or you think about how technology in and of itself could become your freelancer. Uh, where are we there? I mean, some tasks arguably at some point are freelanceable by machine structures. Yes. In, in a yes. certain sense. That's right. We, we, call the, we call the book the human cloud, but it's really, we talk about two clouds. We talk about the human cloud and the machine cloud. And it's that, that latter one, which is what you're referring to, where uh, artificial intelligence or technology automation in general can can do relatively routinized tasks. And what we're finding, and this this is one of those other trends that have really start to take shape over the last 10 years or so, technology has been able to do more human-like activities well enough to justify outsourcing that to, to a system. And you know, there's we talk in the book about calendaring, email automation, uh, marketing automation, social media management, things of that nature, which are fairly formulaic, um, at least to get you started. And, and we're finding that. We're finding technology starting to supplant roles that would have traditionally been done by humans. Uh, and, and we stress this isn't, this isn't AI coming for jobs, right? These are individual discrete tasks that make, might make up part of a person's day. Uh, but we are nowhere near having... Uh, AI that is smart enough to intuit what you're looking for, go do an entire job off on its own, and then come back and say, here you are, right? There's still very much a people component. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to get to the sort of the future part of this soon, but let's just uh, dive deeper into the limitations in terms of structure and regulation. So we've talked about some of the organizational blockers. Uh, surely some people aren't as comfortable as others with this. I mean, COVID has probably... Uh, desensitized some people just out of necessity, but uh, at least generally before this point in time, uh, one blocker to adoption of freelancers or virtual work was simply that the leadership didn't want it, were uncomfortable with not seeing work being performed in front of their eyes. Right. How, where is that part going? The actual uh, uncomfortable nature of something you cannot I guess control as as visibly. Yeah, it. Or maybe it's an illusion, have, right? Because you can track work pretty detailed on a on a screen as well. That's true too. That's true too. I, I think we're 
I come back to that trust element because it, it is so key. Uh, what I have found, and, and we went through it in my, my current organization and a number of our clients went through as well, uh, there was an initial, how are we going to know if they're doing work if they're not here in the office and I'm not tracking them? How do I know they're actually working? Uh, and to your point, the output, what we create, the value we're generating is what matters. Uh, so if you're still seeing that output, you're still seeing what you need and it's it's high quality. Frankly, you don't care if they're doing it at three in the morning on their couch or if they're sitting at a desk from eight to five. So there, there is that element of, of output that is key. Uh, I do think we will rebound a bit, right? As, as uh, hopefully we get to the other side of COVID, you'll see organizations coming back to the office. Uh, I don't think it's going to rebound all the way, though. They'll be more flexible. They'll be willing to have people work from home periodically. Uh, they'll be open to hiring remote roles. I think they'll be open to hiring freelancers as well. But and you know, if we want to dive into it, there's a number of structural impediments to the actual act of bringing a freelancer into an organization that that do need attention. Uh, because without that, you know, bringing a freelancer on, taking three weeks to onboard a freelancer to do an eight-hour task is not effective. Um, so we need to get better at what that looks like. Right. And, well, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm hiring some freelancers right now. And one of the issues, of course, is, you know, what access are you going to give them? Uh, are they going to sign all the usual NDAs and stuff that right. you sign for employees? If not, then what's the uh, accountability for stuff gone wrong? You know, yes. how deep access are you going to give them? If you don't give them access at all, then are you really just kind of reduplicating because you're organizing and you're spending a lot of time right organizing the work and you might as right. well have perhaps done it yourself. So right. there, there is that aspect. Is that, how would that get easier over time? Is yeah. that also just more clever product ideas to get that done or is it more regulatory? I think it's, I think it's both. Uh, certainly on the product side, right? You think about something like portable healthcare, universal healthcare, the same would apply for a lot of the HR checks that while each company says they're unique for what they do, they're probably 90% similar to every other organization. It's, you know, an, an NDA, it's background checks, it's, um, you know, you know, system access, it's these kind of routinized things. Can you simply just package that up and say, no matter who you hire, you're onboarding them through our platform and therefore you have these assurances that they've met all, they've checked all those boxes before you actually had to bring them on, right? And that's, if you think about freelance, like agencies, design agencies, or, um, Sorry, design agencies or things like that, or uh, or contractor companies, you know, Robert Half or something. That's what they do. Uh, but that's a large organization in and of itself. If you can supplant that with just technology with an onboarding platform, uh, that would streamline things. But we definitely need to solve, particularly here in the U.S. Um, I, was I was talking with someone from uh, Scandinavia, and and it's a different set of problems there. But here, we need to solve the healthcare portability challenge. Uh, we need to solve the the self-employment tax challenges and some of these other things that are really, from a regulatory perspective, uh, limit or punish individual contributors. Right. Well, that's a, a massive issue, as you know, in, yeah. in Europe with contract workers and uh, whether it is in transportation mobility side of things or generally it's been you know a perennial issue around freelancers because right. the social safety net you know, was built with a completely different framework in mind. So that's for sure. That's um, if we move a little towards towards the future then, um, 
we have called this episode something around orchestration, and and you have some thoughts about that. What is really the the role of humans, uh, and especially non freelancers, then, in uh, contrast to all of the tasks that freelancers are perhaps going to to take over? And and what's the pure role of a human in in sure. in you know against all the technology? Right, and it's it's something. It's it's a thought experiment I've gone through many times in terms of thinking. What is the end? You know, what's the end game for us as as people, as creative beings, when so much of what we hold on to as our identity uh, and say is uniquely human is being bested by by machines, right? It went from... Even creativity, I might say, right? Even I mean, creativity, think, that's right. Right, and there are plenty of what we would have called creative tasks five years ago were the early ideation stage, coming up with alternatives, coming up with suggestions, whether it is x-ray images or anything. It's not just classification anymore. It is true yeah. suggestions. It, it is. It is. And it, it's, it's, scary in, it's scary in some ways, right, to think that what we hold so dear is, is at risk. Uh, I tend to look at it more as a balanced view. Uh, and this is not a new, right, this is not a new argument or discussion. It's just been accelerating. Uh, what I think makes us, what I do think makes us human is that, that orchestration, it's, it's being the conductor and it's, it's the entrepreneurial spirit. It's our creativity and stitching things together in new ways and, and making things happen in the world, right? It goes back to that change maker. How do we, how do we add value faster, better than we ourselves could do a year ago, than, than the competition could do five years ago, right? How do we continue to level up there. Uh, and that's where, when we think about freelancing and the tapestry of skills that are now available there and will continue to grow, when we think about AI and the, the techniques and tasks that it's able to accomplish, a conductor, right, is stitching all those together to add even more value. And uh, we, use a, we use an example in the book uh, around the journalist, right? The journalist, to your point around creative endeavors, you could say, oh, Computers can write a really clever, you know, let's say it's a sports, uh, it's a game summary or something like that. Really clever, very pronounced uh, analogies and things like that that you would never know a computer wrote it. Uh, so there's been a lot of prognosticating that journal journalists are are dead, right? Journalism is dead. Um, there's a different set of arguments around the challenges faced there. But if we just look at the writing, a, a journalist today is still going to create that final piece but they're going to leverage perhaps a freelancer to do the initial research and interviews. They're going to leverage a computer to do some of the editing and, and additionally research. They're going to stitch that all together. They might use a computer system to do A-B testing and validate which title or which uh, language is better received by readers. So there's, there's all of these tasks that come together, but the journalist is still that mini CEO, that, that CEO of one that's driving all of this to a solution. And uh, that's, you know, that's what we see. That's what I see. The people that I've, I've coached and have been successful in careers in a variety of different industries and roles, it's all about how you basically act as that entrepreneur. You act as that CEO. If you have that mindset, you're able to continue to adapt as more and more tasks that we pride ourselves in begin to get routinized. Well, so, so that brings me to the question, what kinds of skills should you have? I mean, I have kids, you know, how, how, how should they train? How should I train 
how do you be, how do you maintain your relevance? Uh, so you're fighting machines, you're fighting other people, you're fighting people. I mean, you're fighting. I mean, in the sense that yes. there's people all around the world gunning for your job, and uh, many of them are clever. Many of them are on markets that are becoming more and more transparent. But but let's just say that we have this orchestration idea, and that that is for now fairly human and unique. Even just to be a good conductor, like, uh, you know, if you actually are talking about a music conductor, there are very few institutes, you know, there's one in Finland that's like really renowned. Right. There's, you know, cl- you know, a couple in London. You can't go anywhere to, 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 to learn to be a great conductor. And even if you graduated from those places, that doesn't make you a Karayan right off the bat. Right. Some people right. never become the Karayans of their generation. So it's a yeah, tall order to be a it's conductor. Tall order, it is a tall order. Uh, I think the answer is is similar for both. I'll start with those entering, you know, entering the workforce or entering college. Uh, you know, they ask, should I go get a computer science degree? Should I become a software developer? And I say, no, no, not necessarily. I mean, if that's what your passion is, go for it. But uh, but no, it's it's less about the degree that you have and more about the set of skills and experiences that you build. And it it comes back to you know it's trite but true being an being a lifelong learner. Uh, so really continuing to adapt, to learn, to read, understand what the trends are. That's that's number one. Um, because if you're standing still, you're falling behind in today's world at an ever quicker pace. Uh, but it's it's mostly, and we we give a number of examples or, or areas that we recommend in the book for anybody. It's soft skills for the most part. So it's it's communication, it's psychology, it's understanding how people work, it's project management, right? Organize two point organizing all of this takes a lot of effort, and if you're not disciplined in how you do so, there's a lot of inefficiencies and, and missed opportunities. Uh, analytical skills, so that you understand the data you're getting and how you work with it. So there's there's these all of these items that are much again you're not going to find them in most classrooms for sure, certainly not universities. Uh, but they're things that you can learn uh, independently. You can learn working with and being exposed to solid people in those environments and, and finding a good coach or mentor, honestly. That, that's made a huge difference for me. Yeah, well, I, I think to that point, it's uh, a bit of building a portfolio in a certain sense, right? You have to seek out experiences, perhaps, that are challenging you and diversity of people and uh, challenges and and then kind of just create your own mashup uh, for lack yes. of, of, of words you know and that that is your skill set after a while yes and it is and incidentally what I did in my own career but by happy accident that was not a you know that was not planned <laughs> but but it served well and I think those that I've seen that have been non-traditional that have followed you know it's instead of it's not a career ladder anymore it's a career jungle gym you're sort of moving up, down, sideways, maybe hopping over to a completely different set of equipment, um, because it's that variety and challenge that really do prepare you for the word that we're, world that we're heading into. Hmm. Is it an exciting world, or is it a scary world that we're heading into from this perspective of the human cloud orchestration? Yeah. Is it uh, should it be something to to fear? Uh, I worry that it's. I worry that it's getting uh, that there's more of a gap there. 
So to your point, the people that are are winners, if you want to qualify it that way, but people that do well in this new environment, the world is bright for them, right? Because it's harder and harder to do that. But that's leaving a lot of people behind. So I, I think we need to really, again, back to that societal, cultural, and, and government view is how do we provide new safeguards to ensure that that gap does not become uh, insurmountable? Uh, how do we create opportunities? How do we get people into the marketplace? How do we you know, fight systemic racism and, and sexism and things like that to allow people the opportunity, give them the systems? Uh, but uh, all that said, I'm overall optimistic about where we're heading because we keep leveling up what we're able to contribute to the world. And that's pretty exciting. Um, And it's, we're, I've been thinking, I've been thinking, you know, some of this has to do with digital just because it's a platform that then gives you access to a lot of these skills, whether they be soft skills or technology skills. Like, um, is there a set of sort of digital rights uh, more than just, you know, pronounced at the UN level, but truly digital rights that, each individual across this world really should have so that they can have the opportunity to level up. I mean, it's, these are really going to perhaps become questions, true questions to, to, to answer because they're right. If you have a decade or, you know, God forbid two decades lead time on another person, because you grew up somewhere where you had internet and you were fiddling with whatever it is, whether it was Fortnite or, uh, project-based management systems and we're but doing freelancing, yeah. it, there's, you're learning, you're learning. And, and catching up with 20 years like that uh, is hard. I, I, think that has, I think that has to be part of the answer given the way our society is evolving where everything is becoming digital and that we've seen that today, right? So I, I think there has to be that. I don't think that's sufficient though. Uh, you know, I'm mindful that you can have all of that but you grow up in a, in a tough environment or, you know, have to have to go to work early because you're supporting your family. Uh, these are things that become very difficult to, to solve for. And, and there's not a technology software or, or otherwise that, that helps with that. So really, you know, continuing to fix some of the societal issues that we particularly have here in the U.S. among other places is critical. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, when I, when we look at the, the freelance space, for instance, um, I've been fortunate to work with people, you know, as far flung as, you know, South America, the Philippines, uh, uh, Pakistan and, and other places. And have been really, to your point, similarly impressed and a little nervous about the, the quality of skill and energy that a lot of these world markets bring. And that's, you know, that's always been the promise of, of freelance and outsourcing, but I'm starting to see it actually as a reality, right? And the people that I work with and the quality of work that they do. Um, well, hopefully that that is a, a good thing that's kind of counteracting some of these worries that we all have, right? Because if you if you cancel some of the limitations of geography, then at least from a meritocratic standpoint, there are some other types of people and expertise that get a bigger chance, you know, to, to bite yes. out of the global cake. But uh, but even you know, close to home in in every city uh, across America, there's going to be places that don't have that. That's right. That's right. So that's right. So, so yeah, it's not, it's not, uh, I think people in the U S think of it as an, as a world problem or a not U S problem, but, uh, and come to, come to the Midwest, come to some of the, you know, the lower income areas in in Ohio, West Virginia and otherwise. And you, you see there's still people that don't have reliable internet connection. Um, 
you know, don't have access to education, don't have access to healthy food, um, you know, food deserts and, and the like. So there's definitely opportunities for us all. And that's, you know, my, <laughs> for those that do well and uh, do well in, in the technological economy, you know, remember that, remember the opportunities that you had and help, help find ways to, to improve the situation for the next generation. Maybe we need some sort of massive mentor system. Everybody should have their own mentor, I guess. A, a world-class right. mentor somewhere else that just tries to solve stuff for you. I love that. Yeah, it, it, it makes all the difference for those that haven't had a mentor. Go try to go find one. <laughs> they they really have been. It's been instrumental. I can name you know a few in, in my career that have been the difference between sitting here now and, and probably doing the same thing I was doing 15 years ago. Yeah. Well, the power of mentorship and the power of orchestration, I, for one, um, am fascinated by this orchestration thinking here. And uh, I guess I'll go l learn more because you, you can never become good enough at orchestration. Agreed, agreed. Now, same. I'm, I'm always learning. So I, I have subscribed to that as well. And uh, my wife teases me. I read... Uh, I read mostly business books, biographies, and things of that nature. So she always sort of rolls her eyes at me. But that's, uh, yeah, always, always learning. It's a good good mantra. All right. Well, next conversation, we'll, we'll talk some literature then, uh, Matt. All right. Well, it was fascinating <laughs> to hear about this. Uh, best of luck with the human cloud. And uh, let's stay in touch. And, you know, we should cover this topic. Uh, I, I'd be curious to hear what our conversation is like the, uh, in the next decade. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very fascinating to see how this all, all unfolds. None of us have the answers. So excited to see what happens. <laughs> Likewise. Have a great day. Thanks, John. Take care. You have just listened to episode 93 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was orchestrating the freelancer economy. In this conversation, we talked about the book that Matt Coatney co-authored called The Human Cloud, how today's change makers use artificial intelligence and the freelance economy to transform work. From routinized repetitive assembly line work towards project-oriented work in all sectors, the enablers include AI, globalization, cloud platforms, and shadow IT. The limitations include the structure, regulations, and organizational blockers. The future outlook will mean that orchestration is the key human skill, although industry and task-specific cloud collaborations platforms matter as well. My takeaway is that the freelancer economy is all about orchestrating people and technologies at a distance. This is not easy. As more and more intense and complex project-oriented work takes place outside the remits of the traditional workplace, team leadership and management skills need to increase in magnitude and quality. The sweet spot is where the enabling technology meets the challenges of human connection and productivity. The experimentation and the debate will only intensify in the years to come. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 49, Living the Future of Work, episode 41, The Future of Work, or episode 78, The Next Generation Marketplaces. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.